First of all, a shout out and thank you to my good friend Corey Cambridge and podcast host of Silent Giants and OPP Other People's Podcasts for making this interview happen. Thanks, Corey. And he said, Lucia, what are you going what are you majoring in next year? And I said, uh, advertising design. And he said, No, you're not doing that. And I said, Well, yeah. He said, No, you're gonna major in industrial design. I said, There are no women in industrial design. And he said, So what? And I said, Well, I'll think about it. Maybe that's what I should do. So what? So there were sixty-three men in industrial design and two women. So I, I took industrial design. And I was so glad. A Pratt Industrial Design alum and professor, a former George Nelson senior designer, a career spanning over 60 years, creator of the iconic Dunkin' Donuts logo, and timeless products that still sell in high-end design stores. This week's guest is 91-year-old Lucia de Respinez. Lucia's life could not be described as easy or predictable, moving home as a child every two years, her father dying when she was 14, being only one of two women in an industrial design class of 62 men in 1949, building a career in design in a male-dominated 1950s New York, losing her husband at age 40, and bringing up a child as a single mother. Lucia's life force should inspire anyone to defy what society defines as possible. At 91 years old, Lucia is still a professor at Pratt, passing on her wisdom, teaching design thinking to a new generation of talent, and in doing so, recalibrating our perception of age. I hope you enjoy this deep dive into design, abstraction, and life lessons with Lucia de Respinez. So thanks very much. It's so amazing well, that you. you're actually on the show. So thank you for making time this Sunday afternoon. So before we um, explore your life in design, um, <laughs> which uh, is going to be incredible, uh, we'd like to understand a bit more about your childhood, where you grew up, the influence your parents had in terms okay. of the support, their guidance, their direction had on your um, journey towards a life in design. Well, I was born. In New York? No. I'm born in uh, Cleveland, Ohio. But um, my father was an executive with AMP. Mm-hmm. That's Atlantic Pacific Tea Company. He was transferred constantly. So I was born in, in, in Cleveland, and then three years later, when I was three, we moved to Pittsburgh. And it would always be a city, of course, and then we'd live in the suburbs. So I was in Pittsburgh, and I went to kindergarten there. It was sort of a city school, because we were living in a house, but it was like half of a house. I went to kindergarten and I was connected to my parents to such an extent because I was with them all the time. I was an only child mm-hmm. and my mother's mother always lived with us. So I had two mothers. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine. I wasn't spoiled, I don't think. I don't know, it's hard to tell from my point of view. But it was interesting. Uh, when I went in, I was really, I didn't want, it was the first time I'd been apart from my mother or my grandmother. So I threw up. Oh. They made me clean it up. <laughs> That's the way things that work. That was like my that. introduction yeah. to kindergarten mm. in Pittsburgh. Mm. So uh, my mother said, you're not going back, period. 
and then we were going to move again anyway. So then this was three years later, we moved back to Shaker Heights in Ohio. And then I went to first grade, and that was fine. And I remember I knocked a girl's tooth out because she had, I had red hair. This incidentally, I've never done anything to my hair color, mm -hmm. ever. And this is the this original color. You were taken away from your, what we call in Scotland, primary school, but you said it was your elementary school. Yeah, and that was in uh, And that's in when you were in, in, in Ohio. second after we moved back to Ohio. Uh, and when, did you, come to, when and did you come to New York? Well, then my father was transferred again and we went to Boston. It was every three years. But that sort of thing had begun to roll off of me because it was every three years I was moving and I was very used to change then. Mm -hmm. And then three years later, we moved to Springfield, Massachusetts. So that's quite interesting. The and then after, th after three years in Springfield, Massachusetts, my father had his fourth heart attack. And we moved to upstate New York to Albany. And he was the head of the New England division for AMP. Mm -hmm. But after his fourth heart attack, he couldn't take on that responsibility anymore. After 11 months of moving to a new place, buying a new house, being in a new neighborhood, and you know how neighborhoods are. Mm -hmm. And you schools? My father died. Oh. And I was 14. So my mother, being made of stainless steel, decided that after uh, she was, you know, he got paid for a couple of years, and which was good. Mm -hmm. They they paid moms. And then after that, she said, she had been an accountant. And she said, I'm going back, get a refresher. And she did. So, and then she went to the state and became a uh, tax examiner for business. And, How uh, old was she? She was mid-40s when Daddy died. I think she was born in 1897. This was 1941. So how many years is that? You with a terrific mathematical ability. 44. That's how yeah. old she was. And I was 43 when mm -hmm. Lou died. Yeah. And my father died at 50, and Lou died at 50. Wow. Which was weird. But I was older because they had gotten married when she was 20, and I married when I was 30. So that's where the difference is. So then I used to go downstairs and make things in the cellar because my father set up a shop because of his high pressure work, he would come home, we had a baby grand piano, he would always play for about an hour, and then after dinner he'd go downstairs and build things. And I went down with him and I started building things too. After he died, I spent a lot of time down there because I felt it was this, sort of close to a, him. This was in Albany? Yeah, it was in Delmar, which is a suburb of an Albany, a suburb of Albany. About 15 miles and When you say he was building things, what type of things? He'd build a corner cabinet for me. He was German, born here. His two brothers were born in Germany. His sister was born here. So uh, he had a, a German builder's <laughs> ability inside mm -hmm. of him. And he built a beautiful corner cabinet for me. And the stairs up to the attic, it fit right in. All my stuffed animals were there. It was wonderful. 
And then he built some other stuff uh, for the patio and things like that, you know. So you were developing a design aesthetic and skill even at that early age? Yeah. Because of your father? Because we cast those lead soldiers over there. I would, after we cast them and cut off the flash, then I was about, this is when we were in Boston, and I was about, went from 8 to 11, really, there. And we cut the flash off, and then um, I dipped them in the white paint, and then he colored them the way you see them there. And then every time he went on a business trip, he brought me back an automobile. Mm-hmm. And the old ones there are the way automobiles looked when I was little. And I have the first one that you'll see later is over on a shelf on top there. If you ever threw it to a kid, you'd, you'd kill your best friend because... <laughs> Because they were made of steel and they were heavy. Really crazy things for kids. You, know. you said something about that, that I find interesting because you said you there was a lot of change in your formative years with your father moving. Mm-hmm. And I, it's something I grew up with as well. I think uh-huh. seven schools. And I think. Yeah, we'll I come, went to seven. Well, okay. Well, yeah, we'll interesting. About how that prepares you to embrace uncertainty in life. A lot of people that just, I think, have predictable, one school, same group of friends, change. Yeah. And we live in, a, obviously, a, a world today that's changing faster than it ever has done before. Except but I've I, lived here for 50 years and maybe... Eventually you have to settle down somewhere. <laughs> yeah. But um, what was the young Lucia like at school? I was not a follower. Mm. That, I doesn't, was that doesn't the, surprise me. I was always <laughs> the odd one out because I was the new kid and uh-huh. we always lived in a community and communities in this country are where people move in and out, but not to the extent that we did. So we're moving in and out. In, you know, three mm-hmm. years isn't very long. That's exactly it's long in me. a long in a little kid's life, but not in in an older person's mm-hmm. life. So I was into riding my bike like mad, playing bike polo with croquet mallets in the middle of the street. Of course, there were very few cars, and there were some a couple of other kids that liked to do that too. So we used to <laughs> be going with one hand, and you can imagine how many times I fell off the bike. And I was into sports and into basketball and into a lot of things like that. Even in high school, there was a guy that liked me, and I just hated him. So I tried to stay away from him. And it's, you know, I was more into sports, and I couldn't have cared less about the rest of the bunch, even though there was a high school for a sorority, and they asked me to join. I can remember my mother used to put out the ashtrays because my mother didn't smoke, and I didn't smoke, my grandmother didn't smoke. My father smoked between the acts, and he couldn't stop smoking, mm-hmm. uh, which was one of the reasons, maybe, yeah, uh, working on his heart. And we used to have a lot of beef, you know, and it was typical 1930s, 1940s uh, consumption of food, which was not good for people with a, fourth, with a third heart attack waiting for the fourth one. He had been gassed also in the First World oh, War. Oh, so he fought in the Yeah, Western he was Front. in France. 
right, it was so a gun that, emplacement in, yeah, so that uh, wouldn't have, um, in the First been, World War, and he was gassed. Obviously, today, uh, soldiers coming back from war, even since Vietnam, we've been talking about post-traumatic stress disorder. But mm. back then, it was just, you got to be stiff upper lip, stoic stiff attitude and get on with it. Yeah. Which obviously probably did contribute to drinking and, and keeping those, those experiences, which must have been horrific, yeah. buried inside him. Yeah, he didn't talk about it any more than the the guys from the Second World War talked about it. Lou would never talk about it, especially, even though my husband, whose name was Lou, Luis, he was uh, a map maker during the Second World War in France, and he had a big table that he used to sleep on. And suddenly at 2 in the morning, uh, the generals or whoever it was would come in and say, okay, Lou, up, and then change re- change emplacements and change, he had to change the map, so then he was up until the morning <laughs> making the changes on the map, and then they were coming in and looking at it. So he was always in that sort of an environment. He was never on the front, mm-hmm. which was good, but he was always in the emplacements behind oh, that's interesting. So he must be plotting. So we're going to come talk about your um, how you met your husband, but mm. that he was six, seven years older than you. Seven, seven years older than you, right? So he must be quite same young. as my mother and father. So he must be quite young um, as a young a recruit during the Second World War. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, talk to us about how the you went from sort of school loving. Uh, the sports, always drawing building cabinets in the basement to <laughs> university and eventually ending up in New York at, at Pratt. Um, well, uh, when I graduated from high school, I went to St. Lawrence University for two years. And that, that is where? And that's in Canton, New York. Mm. That's right up at the Canadian border. So that was for two years. So I said to my mother, I eventually want to go to Pratt because we had had two relatives on my father's side that had gone to Pratt. One had gone for advertising, and he had opened a, uh, an advertising agency on Madison Avenue and was successful. Do you remember what it was called? No, I don't. His name was uh, Shriver. Mm-hmm. So because he opened it, it might have been under his name. Yeah. And the other was my other uncle's, my other father's brother's son had gone to Pratt for architecture. And at that time, they only had a certificate. So then he went to NYU to finish to get the degree. And I have a picture of him about four years later shaking the hand of Eleanor Roosevelt Hmm. because he had won the national award for a particular kind of building or something. So I said, I want to go to Pratt for advertising. And my cousin that had gone, I remember we came down here, and he said, you don't want advertising. She wants I to said, be a yes, graphic I designer. I said, I want, a graphic, yeah, yeah. I want to be a graphic designer. And he said, you don't want to get into advertising. I said, I don't know what it's about. I want to find out. So he was trying to discourage me because he said, everybody's drinking. I said, oh, listen, I like beer. <laughs> something's something, was, it's something's boy, Well, I'll tell you, they also <laughs> drank in industrial design, too. <laughs> I mean, those martinis were terrific uh, at noon. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay, something's did change. We waited until yeah. 3. <laughs> oh, yeah. It was a crazy time. So then I decided to stay home because... Um, 
I don't know. I didn't especially like St. Lawrence. It was mm -hmm. nice, but they didn't have any terrific art or whatever. And I said, what am I doing there? Yeah, fine. And also my father was dead. My mother was, you know, working and had... Still, still in Albany. Yeah, in Del Mar. And she was commuting. She was driving into Albany every day to uh, be at the center of stuff there with uh, the tax and all, doing business taxes. And so I said, I'm staying home. So she said, all right, that's what you want to do. So we had friends across the street. He was with the telephone company. And I said, got any place in the drafting room for me there? And he said, sure. So I went down and got a place in the draft and learned how to use a ruling pen on linen to make permanent drawings of cross sections of railroad tracks where all of the telephone company lines had to cross. They had to have wow. actual drawings of mm -hmm. that. And then doing charts. And this, this was in North this was in Albany. Albany yeah. yeah, this was in Albany in the telephone building, one of the tall buildings that was there at the time, tall. But now, you know, it wasn't very tall. And then there was a little a newspaper, so then I took that on and did the covers for it and did some drawings. And so for that year, it was sort of a learning process, which was really good and stood me in good stead when I went to Pratt. But so then I applied just, to Pratt. Just some clear, when yeah. you were doing this work, which obviously was involving a sort of design thinking and an aesthetic, had you at that point decided that you weren't going to do graphic design? Or, or no. at this point, you were still... I was thinking. still doing graphics. Then, that's where chance comes in. So what would this be, 1949? 1949, yeah. yes. Then uh, I went to Pratt. So I came here, and it was different than St. Lawrence. I can imagine. Yeah. You can imagine. There was one main building and another engineering building, no campus, a street that went through it, And that was Pratt. Uh, and I lived on Ryerson Street. It was a new experience, and I was excited about it. It was fun. And um, I had a roommate. She was a graphic designer, and she was designing um, fonts uh -huh. and in, in, her, in, in graphics and all. But anyway, before that, I was in foundation year. I was walking along the street with a 3D thing, And Pete Renz, who went eventually to Ford, was coming the other way. And he was a senior, and I had met him in the uh, union, the student yes, union. Yes, union. And he said, Lucia, what are, you going, what are you majoring in next year? And I said, uh, advertising design. And he said, no, you're not doing that. And I said, well, yeah. He said, no, you're going to major in industrial design. I said, there are no women in industrial design. And he said, so what? And I said, well, I'll think about it. So I said, okay, maybe that's what I should do. So what? So there were 63 men in industrial design and two women. So I, I took industrial design. And I was so glad. Yeah, I just loved it. Did you have any concept of what it would involve before you went in? Not really. I knew by that time that it was the design of everything. Mm -hmm. 
And that's all I had to know. Pratt teaches industrial design from a different point of view from a lot of the schools. Mm-hmm. It's very much an understanding of form and form relationship. And it's an education of the eye. So your eye can determine. And once you understand that, you can design anything, as I did. I did graphics. I did interiors. I did furniture. I did uh, tabletop, uh, china, and glassware. I did everything. And I felt very confident doing it. I designed a, a, you know, I would design a for a restaurant if I did an interior. Then I would design their logo and their menu and, you know, everything. And that's what you can do if, if you study 3D, which is the, uh, which is the education of vision. Yeah. First of all, Lucia, it's an honor to have you in this podcast. Well, this is the first time I'm speaking. Yes. Um, it's an honor to have you <laughs> interview me. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. you. Um, anyway, I wanted to start with a design questions on the specific time in the in the early 50s or late 40s. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of the social time in design and what was happening, was there any big influence for you in terms of what you thought or were, what were your influences based on the, the, the principles and the philosophies that were happening at the time? I think if you're a designer, you absorb your time and place in history without even realizing it. Right. I would love to, to know a little bit more about those movements that you're talking about in terms of the 3D. And also you've talked about the abstract of a design. So do they go hand in hand? How do you incorporate them in a process? And what makes Pratt different? Well, when you're studying something in abstract, you can arrive at forms that are not pre, uh, uh, preconceived. You're using the principles of abstraction to design. And if you're designing things that have been designed before when you get out of Pratt, then your head is filled with what's been done before. Could you give an example? What you have to do is to empty your head mm-hmm. of all the things and all the forms that have been associated with that particular product previously. And you approach it by saying, how is it used? How does it react, interact with the human body? How does it feel? What are the things around it? What is the light, the smells, the, uh, the forms that surround it? All these things enter into the abstraction of what this might be without considering, without a preconception of form. And to preconceive form will kill you because you end up lighting on something that has no reason for being. Whereas if you approach it from how it interacts with the human body, the human spirit even, uh, uh, the human movement, uh, a human environment, then you start from scratch and you probably will end up with something that is unique but also fulfilling visually and also fulfilling from a point of view of function. Exactly. Without the two, 
without fulfilling function and beauty, there's no reason for industrial design. And I tell students, you are a service industry. A lot of people take industrial design because they want to make a name. Uh-uh. That's not your place. Your place is to take each problem and solve it so that it makes life better for every person that uses it, both visually and functionally, period. So a question I've got in terms of how do you teach that and why is, why is the process you use at Pratt different to other design schools? I have no idea why it's different. Mm. I don't know why every school hasn't taken on this approach, but schools in Asia have taken this approach because they've asked people if I were younger, I would go to China, I would go to Japan, I would go to Korea, and I would teach. Mm-hmm. But I'm too old to do that. Oh, don't know. And, <laughs> well, it's, I mean, with my sight the yeah, way it sorry, is, yeah. too, I can't get around alone, really. What was the other question? The question also was the 3-dimensional part. The 3-dimensional part is also part of the abstraction, or it's the methodology on how you apply, once you figure out what... What, it, what are the well, needs of that specific Let me give you an example product. of a problem. The convexity problem. The convexity problem has to do with a lump and how it flows so that you understand surface. And you create little lumps that grow to be bigger lumps in, uh, in plasticine, in just you know, plasticine clay, not not clay that you dry or whatever. And then you, you cast those and you work them in plaster so that they have surfaces that mark direction because you understand surface, but also from within that there are surfaces that then come out and have a dominance and a subdominance and a subordinate area very subtly in this whole form. Now, I have, I have samples on my iPad that I can show you. Now, what I did and what I did for a while, but, you know, in a school there should be a succession of things that happen so that everyone does the same thing and grows in the same way. But when they asked me to teach 3D, I interjected something that Rowena Reed Costello, who was, she and, and Costello were the two that had founded this approach. And Boudreau in 1939 and 1937 had asked them to come to Pratt because they had been at... Uh, Carnegie Tech. Ah, ah they which then became Carnegie Mellon. But that Carnegie was pre, Mellon. Pre yeah, Mellon. That's the M. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Pre Mellon, Carnegie Tech. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they had developed something there that was really interesting. So Boudreaux offered them enough money to come as a pair to Pratt. Now, uh, Rowena was a sculptor and she had developed this approach. Uh, Alexander Costello had been a painter, and he had developed an approach also. So they put this together, and they developed the first formal curriculum 
for industrial design in the country. And all the curriculum now is sort of based on this, but without the teaching of the 3D, which Rowena was so great at, and she was only at Pratt, so she couldn't go from one to another because yeah. it's very difficult for someone to teach this. But now we've got people that are teaching this way in Korea, and uh, a friend of mine on, on faculty just went to China for three weeks, and they're asking her to come back next year for three weeks and maybe a month mm -hmm. because it's, it's such a wonderful way to shake loose all the garbage that's in your head yeah. and the purity of it so that you can concentrate on what the actual form yeah. is. It's, it's at the end. So if you put it in the process, first comes the abstraction of understanding in terms of the methodology, mm. and then comes the 3D where it's actually like the end of the process where you actually take a form to create that product. Like what is that product going to be like? Well, it how depends you on how you... It comes from a different morphing. point of view each time. Now, what I did was take just for a couple of semesters, and they said, this is great, but do you want to teach it separately? I said, yeah, I could teach it separately because it's not in the curriculum, but it was in the curriculum when Rowena taught me, mm -hmm. and that's a sample of it at the end. That's a, th a study of a 3D figure. Mm -hmm. It's quite Henry Moore-esque. Now, the thing is, I didn't know that Henry Moore existed hardly. Oh, yeah. oh wow. And I came up That's incredible. developed that. <laughs> but Henry Moore worked in the same way because Rowena knew Henry Moore and also had worked with Arkepenko, Arkepenko and uh, and Lipschitz uh -huh. in uh, in Europe. And she came she brought all this back. So when I started doing that, she said, oh, God, I want to photograph this. <laughs> That's amazing. You know, but the thing well, is, it has, moment in time. It, has it, it gives you the sense of, of opposition, uh -huh. of interest visually. And how do you create interest visually? You don't do it by cutting things in half. You don't do it by repeating things similarly. So if you go the opposite way, that's part of your abstraction, mm -hmm. to create things that so are not similar, to create things where there's a sense of locale in, in, a, um, in an area that is dominant, so that it organizes, it's a, it's a sense of organizing space and negative and positive space. And you work with negative space when you're doing a, uh, an exhibit. And with patterns also, with, with flow patterns within an exhibit. And with, uh, with understanding what has to be there and making it beautiful. Okay, so maybe your abstraction doesn't come into an exhibit, but you understand sufficiently that the organization of it is an abstraction within itself. <clears throat> I think it's great that the um, Koreans, the Chinese, the Japanese are embracing this. I think it's sad that there aren't other schools and that a legacy of a great American design yeah. of, is potentially being not lost, but 
is not being exploited to the degree that it should be yeah. for this next century. Yeah, uh, Syracuse has it to a certain extent uh, because uh, someone from Pratt went up there and became head of their industrial design department. Some people that go out from Pratt can't teach it because, unfortunately, you have to have an eye also. Uh And, you know, some people automatically have an eye for it and can see that, and other students no matter if you hit them over a head with a bat, they wouldn't understand. I don't know what it is about the way the brain is connected that allows some people to immediately see what you're talking about, some to learn through execution, their own, and also things being pointed out and something visually they see, learn that way, and then those who just never get it. Well, I think that if you do it by hand, it's easier to start to understand it because you yes. can morph it and have more control out of it. That's the only way to do it, but by wh- hand. What do you think about the new technologies where there's like this complex 3D software where you can morph No, you have to start with the hand. It's with hand. head to hand to paper. Because if you interrupt that with the front brain area, then you lose some of it. You have to go directly hand-to-head to paper, which is sketches, which yeah. is developing, which is the process of developing a design. And you cannot work on a screen to develop a design because the screen is not three-dimensional. After you've developed three-dimensionally, you can put it on the computer, turn it, uh-huh. See how it looks. Start with color. Start putting it on. Find color combinations that work. Take it off the computer. Build it. Put the color on and see if it works as well three-dimensionally as it did there. Or I'm thinking about a specific problem there when I'm talking about a color and all. But uh, that can work for anything. You know, a piece of furniture. You can't design a piece of furniture on a computer. Mm -hmm. No, definitely. You use it as uh, as another uh, another as a way to get precision or another like way to multiplying. get precision to do the detailed drawings, to do the the joinery, to do whatever. But you cannot conceive of it a three dimensional thing in two dimensions and be su- totally successful. You yeah. can't do it, and that's one of the problems with a lot of design today. We're going to come and talk about that. Can we uh, jump back to you leaving Pratt and oh. cover a little bit about your initial sort of uh, experience of work and how you yeah. ended up at the one of the greatest design <laughs> studios of its time? Yeah. yeah. First of all, I, uh, my mother and I decided uh, that we wanted to do some traveling, so we went to California. We took a train, which you can't do anymore, up through Canada and then down the coast to Vancouver and then uh, into California and down to a wedding of a friend of hers, her daughter. And we went to the wedding and then we took the train the southern way through the Grand Canyon. Of course, we would stop at all these places. We stopped at Banff and Lake Louise up there. We stopped at Grand Canyon and then through the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia and the like and then up 
And I love riding on a train. I love, I love going to sleep on a train. Mm. It's just wonderful. It rocks you to sleep. It's lovely. So then I said to Pratt, I want to start working. And uh, But then it was August. So I said, what do you have? And they said, well, there's Monty Levin, who was, been, who was well known in the, in the uh, hardware area with gutsy stuff and uh, also television sets. And uh, of course, they were into furniture at that time, too. So I said, OK. I took my portfolio over, you know, carrying the portfolio. No internet or anything, of course. Just in, um, in Manhattan. Mm. And this was 1952, and uh, went over to 49th Street between 5th and Madison, and went up to see Monty, and there were two small office, two other people in the office. He looked at it, and he said, you're hired. Okay. Then I noticed the telephone was on my desk, and I realized he had indicated he wanted a female designer. Oh, this was on the on the brief for the job? Yeah. yeah. The reason he wanted a female was so it would sound like a big deal office that had somebody answering the phone. But he didn't have somebody answering the phone, right? It's only Monty and his other two guys there. So after two weeks, after he knew I could do all these detailed drawings and he knew I could work with the engineer who came in off and on and so after two weeks, I said, Monty, you know, let's move the phone. It bothers me. And uh, put it answer, over there. Had and anyone every, answered it at this point? Everybody can answer the phone. And he said, okay. He had to by then. Yeah. He knew you'd probably... Sort of <laughs> I, I could see right cover. through yeah. him. Yeah. I mean, but he was fairly well known. And I, I got stuff produced for Emerson radios and they were advertised. My mother would see a picture of the radio I designed. She'd say, your radio, I saw it in the newspaper. What? I've got some of those old clippings. She kept them all, which was funny. I think that was a a question that Bettina wanted. You were going to ask just around the ownership and how that's changed or has evolved. Oh, gee. You signed away everything. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, everything. Yeah. Everything belongs to the office that you belong, you signed up with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's the same. Same in advertising as well. I mean, if you work for an agency, you're a part of a great campaign. Yeah, you can put it on your resume that you were behind it. But you know, if you win the sort of you know, no one ever. It's always who was behind the sort of the the great 1984 Apple ad. Well, it's not only the it's name, Day. but now. You can get some of the residual on it. You get paid every time. I see my clock still being sold over at MoMA mm-hmm. after all these years. Yeah, or at Design Within Reach. <laughs> or at the uh, Noguchi Museum. Mm-hmm. They're selling my clock. So Do I making, get any of that? So, no. So who's making the money from that now? George Nelson's Foundation. Foundation. And, and they buy, I mean, I think the the, the museums have some rights, or like legal rights to... Yeah, I guess so. So they, peel, they pay license to this that. guy. You signed away everything. It was just standard. Do you think that has changed now, or is it still the same practice? Tremendously. Tremendously. No 
no intelligent industrial designer is walking into an office and signing away their rights to anything. They're deciding, is it 1%, 1 1.5%, 2%, 0.5%, who knows what? But you don't walk in and say, everything I do is yours. Uh Uh-uh. And you also say, my name is included in everything I do. Finally, Industrial Design Magazine in the 1980s, late 80s, early 90s, required the name be there. George still got away with having some stuff in, but usually, like the lighting fixtures I did for Nesson and and, uh, tabletop stuff I did for for Bennington Potters and all that, Mm -hmm. it, it had... Lucia and Derespinus for George Nelson, for, you know, or however they phrased it. Vitra will name you as a designer, for example, on your famous clocks. Yeah. In fact, they give one of my clocks to, to Irving Harper. And I, I tried to correct it, and I said they, wouldn't, they didn't change it uh. for the exhibit or anything. Uh, the, uh, the one which I r- really liked... And some of them I, you know, I like for a while, and then I get sick of looking at. But the uh, uh, the turbine clock, the big brass one, that was attributed to Irving. That must be so frustrating. Yeah, but Irving did so many, you know, and I felt well, I only did about eight, I think, and and so <laughs> I think he must have done twenty. But I thought, what the heck, you know, it doesn't matter. And do you think that you also had a disadvantage because you were a female? At that time, At yes. that time, yeah. But not now. The only time I had, a, it was a plus, was if uh, it was a surprise really early on when I'd walk into a factory and they'd say, where's your boss? <laughs> and I'd say, I'm the boss. I'd like to focus a little bit of time on your time at George Nelson. You were obviously mm-hmm. quite prolific there in terms of the mm-hmm. out- output. Um, there's something I did read that you you went and spent some time in the Soviet Union around the American National Exhibition. Was that with George Nelson or was that Yeah, they, after? We, we designed it. Mm-hmm. And uh, there were, there was a Bucky Fuller dome. We brought in, uh, there was General Motors. They had a smaller dome. Then uh, Chris Craft, uh, this was in Sokolniki Park in, in the middle of Moscow. They had approval to uh, put in a small pond, a larger pond. <laughs> in fact, I don't want to call it a lake, but what's something in between a pond and a lake to float their Chris Craft? And it was a big propaganda thing. It was to show the Soviets... This was America, and this is what we have. And I was responsible for getting all the furniture for the fan-shaped building, along with all the other products, of course. There were different people getting products. This fan-shaped building was like a big Macy. It was all glass, designed by Welton Beckett. And I had to get furniture from a number of different manufacturers, and each time they'd say, where's it going? And I'd say, well, it's going in an exhibit that we have in the Soviet Union. No, no, we're not sending anything. <laughs> now, just a minute. Let me explain. This is a propaganda exhibit. 
uh-huh. you know, and they hated me to say that. But of course, I had to in order to get people to, yeah. to give furniture. So I got uh, at that time, Lou was working with uh, with uh, with Dunbar. He and Ed Wormley were designing the whole Dunbar line, which was one of the five, along with Noel and Herman Miller and Dunbar and Baker were like the four top quality manufacturers in the country. And this is one of Lou's, this and also the Tiffany table, that this one, and a whole bunch of stuff he did. He was in my class, incidentally. Yeah, and definitely. so was Chuck Pollock, and so was a number of other people. But I had to call all these manufacturers, and then I had to, desi- to design the apartment that was in the um, the structure, it was steel steel structure, uh, with aluminum structure within that, with panels. That was for all the products, endlessly. Then within the steel structure, which was 10 foot on center, uh, 10 by 10 by 10, then I designed within that an apartment for a doctor, supposedly, whose, whose income was about supposed to be high, right? You have to consider Soviet one. Union, 1959. Yeah. This was in America. $25,000 a year was considered high. <laughs> this was middle, middle upper income in Manhattan, typical apartment. So I did that, and I used some of Dunbar's sofa. I used this table, I think. I used storage by Herman Miller. I had Charlie's, Charlie Eames' uh, stuff and uh, designed the whole thing. I have a lot of pictures of that, too. But that must be quite an experience to be sent to the Soviet Union in 1959. Yeah, to I walked around with two cameras, and it was constantly being followed. But they imagine, thought they yeah. were clever, but they weren't that <laughs> clever. And then uh, went to see their exhibit, their architectural exhibit, out in uh, out away from the city. Uh, they had uh, buildings from each area of Russia of uh, the. Uh, you know, the north, south, each area was different. That particular architecture, so the building was built with that particular architecture. And then inside were the products that that area produced. But you constantly saw this same lamp. (laughs) It was hanging, and it was this sort of old-fashioned, 1930s-looking lamp uh, supported by a stem with a with this orange shade and you weren't tempted to fabric you weren't was, tempted to sort of like just give them a little bit of insight saying here I'm gonna share with you some design design. ideas here <laughs> somehow no but uh, it was a whole experience for those six weeks and the opening I have shots I went up on the second floor and took shots of Khrushchev and Nixon and Pat Nixon and uh, the whole crew yeah. that came in. And then we were, you know, we were sort of anti-everything at that point. So the the CIA guys, I guess it was, would come in and say, well, don't do this and don't get involved with anybody there because they'll use it against you, you know, and all that. One of the um, one of the guys from uh, from Chris Craft got involved and ended up marrying 
a Soviet woman. And I have a picture of him. He was spraying the interior of the pool. I'm going to live. Plastic. Yeah, he lived there. Wow. Yeah. And we were over at the Ukraina, which was uh, the Soviet, typical Soviet hotel. And also there were seven other, five other buildings like that. One was a hotel. One was a center for uh, government. One was another, I don't know, they were designated, but they all look the same, mm -hmm. the five of them. Yeah. And you can see those five. Classic command planning over. architecture. Yeah, it was really funny. Yeah. So, okay, so uh, you were, so how long yeah. did you spend at George Nelson? 11 years. 11 years. And yeah. what led you to George Nelson? This like, is 90% chance, 10% so you're prepared. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. I was down on the Lower West Side and toward the village, and I wanted to see Jim Valkus, who had uh, who did the uh, Canadian National uh, logo and all, mm -hmm. and he had been in a, in my class. I mean, that shows you we were both doing graphics and, yeah. You know. So um, I stopped in, and he was gay, and he he lived with this guy who was a, a theater guy. And this guy was terrific. He came to the door. He was dressed in the most elegant female stuff. I said, <laughs> boy, you look terrific. I wish I could look that good. <laughs> and he laughed. I said, is Jim there? And he said, yeah, he's in back. So, uh, I went so back. this is 19, early 1970s uh, West this Village. Was, no, this was, it was 1955 and a half. So Jim said, uh, what are you doing? And I said, I'm at Monty Levin's. It's my first job and I'm fed up to here uh, with the kind of thing we're designing and Monty doesn't understand three-dimensional design at all he said why don't you come over to George Nelson's and show him your portfolio I said okay so I called George he said wear a black dress so I wore my most elegant very thin uh, very Pencil thin, um, not classic, thin no? uh, Pleated uh, all around uh, uh, this, this black dress that I had was double-breasted, two buttons, and then pleated all around. Loved it. <laughs> and I went over and got interviewed. And uh, there was no telephone. Huh? There was no telephone on the desk. No telephone <laughs> on the desk. And uh, I went in, and uh, then uh, first I saw uh, what was his name? It was the engineer there? He said, I want you, I want George to see your stuff. I said, okay. I showed it. And uh, he said, you want to wait for a little while outside? And uh, we don't want to keep your portfolio. And I thought, well, yeah, they probably just wanted it. He came out and said, you're hired. Like that. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I started. At that time, how were you assigned to different projects, whether it was going to be a piece of furniture, whether it's going to be... Um, an installation or a clock? Was oh, it's a, it's a uh, go see John Pyle. He wants to design, because John did those chests. Um, he said, go see John. He's working on such and such. And then I'd say, can you design a, a side table for this line? And so I'd draw it up and he'd say, okay, good. But it would look like the line, mm -hmm. you know. Or else, uh, then... Irving would say, can you design a, 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 a clock? Or then it got to the point where George would come out and say, Lucia, Abbott Laboratories 
has just realized that nerve growth factor relates to cancer. Can you do the exhibit and go out and see Abbott Laboratories? Here's some of the information. I not only had that, but when I came back from Abbott Laboratories, I had this much. And I had to read all this and understand it and then put it in a decent exhibit form to communicate with the average person and also the technician and also the uh, higher level scientific people that were going to be at the, in the World's Fair in 1961 in Seattle, in the Seattle World's Fair. So uh, it just so happened that the, the guy who was controlling all of that, the scientific area in this exhibit, was uh, Jim Fulton, who had graduated the year before I did from Pratt. And he said, oh, Lucia, you're designing for Abbott Laboratory. So we talked back and forth on the phone and all. And that was great. So I designed this. So that's, that's the other approach, mm-hmm. that when, I, when George got to know me better, knew what I could do, he would just hand me stuff. Yeah. Or he'd say, Nesson wants a bunch of outdoor lighting fixtures. Go see them. So then I'd go over to Nesson. So going back to the way you were describing um, abstraction and how you approach design, can you give me a specific example for, let's say, the eye clock that you're famous for? How how did you approach, how did that result from what line of thinking or what was your, the requirement? You know, the way you study and surrounded by this Pratt method, Uh as I call it, by understanding abstraction and by, un- by having educated your vision for four years, you don't know where it comes from, but you just know what looks right. You can't separate it anymore. At the time, it was CBS that had started to use the eye, uh-huh. and I thought, you look at a clock, yeah. and your eye is what is telling you the time, so why not have the clock look back at you? Uh-huh. That's a good one. That's a great one, yeah. I love it. And uh, nobody ever asked me that before. And what did George but say when was... you presented it? Did he ask for your logic or did he just go, yeah, I love it? No, you didn't have to show it to him. You didn't? I just showed it to the manufacturer, to wow. Howard Miller. So you had complete creative yeah. control. Yeah. Once you got hired, they didn't hire anybody that, uh, that they didn't trust. Uh-huh. George didn't have to approve anything. George hired you, and then you went to maybe Irving Harper, uh-huh. who was a, a vice president. And uh, I was working with Howard Miller, who was a cousin of the original Herman Miller uh-huh. years ago, yeah. who then married, and then there's a whole thing there. But once you were established, Irving would look and say, fine. Did you ever s- struggle to convince um, a customer that you'd been assigned to, like CBS, when you presented a design and they went, I don't get it? Oh, yeah, this was interesting. Pioneer Plastics had asked us if we would do a bunch of, of uh, laminate designs, graphics designs. 
So I did a whole bunch of stuff, and then I photographed. Oh, that's the other thing I did at George Nelson's, too. I photographed uh, for presentation. So I photographed 35-millimeter slides for George to present to clients. So in this case, I was photographing my own stuff, and uh, George and I would uh, uh, were going to go to Pioneer Plastics. So George would, uh, George looked at what I photographed, you know, and then we went together in that case and made the presentation. And so he did the talking and I controlled this, the slide projector, you know, and, and then he knew what I had, had wanted him to say because I wrote a script. Oh, don't tell me he went off script. <laughs> no, no, but he, I, I didn't write a real script. I wrote the reasons I had done what I did. And then he included that in his script when he gave it. And what was your question? Oh, but did you ever encounter any resistance to what was being Oh, uh, see, if you encountered resistance with George, he made the client feel that high <laughs> because he talked over his head and he could take the client and twist the client into a pretzel. You know, that's why he was successful, because he never went to the client, you know, please <laughs> take what we've got. No, it was, you're lucky to even have us consider this project. That was his attitude. Yeah. And everybody knew it. And he would turn down stuff just can't be bothered with these people. And the, the word was out in the uh, 50s and the 60s, and maybe in the 70s too, I wasn't there. I was at San Bernardino Murtha then. He really just, just squashed his clients like, like that. And we used to say he overdid it. Where do, you think, where do you think you did your best work? Where do I sit, what? Where, where do you think you produced your best work? My best work was always my best work. Mm -hmm. What are you most proud of? Everything I've done. Yeah, there isn't one thing. Because there again, when you learn to approach a problem, you do your best work for that problem. And when it's successful, as all of them I could say actually were, you're just very glad and... and happy and content. I interviewed someone recently uh, called Anderson Teller, who's a, a journalist and writer, and he's mm. written a book called uh, Soon, which is a history of procrastination. It doesn't give you any solutions to procrastination. It's an exploration of it. <laughs> and I wanted to read it. Oh, I, know. <laughs> I keep putting off. No, I did read it. Um, but I... <laughs> I uh, it's an easy one. Um, it's, but I... What I loved about my conversation with him and when I encountered him, we, I saw him speak at Neuhaus and I went up to him and said, I want to interview you for this. But Darwin, who's one of my great heroes, yeah. and Michelangelo were, were known procrastinators. You know, the great creative geniuses um, in any field are often known to suffer from that, that sense of procrastination and guilt and not doing enough in their lifetime. Um, and I'm just wondering, but I've always had the sense that sometimes... Yeah, not that great. That's how you can tell. Well, I, I don't know. I wanted to ask you this, because I've always felt that the great creatives, they, they put off and they put off... You, you talk about you know when you've 
when it's ready, your eye, you've got that recognition. I think there's a sense of, and maybe procrastination is the wrong word for it, but you're dissatisfied until you keep putting off and putting off and putting off until you've that moment when you go, this is it. You work at it and you work at it. And I put in so many hours of time that I never got paid for. Hours. I would stay until 10 o'clock at night and just work until it was right. But that combination of presumably your creative desire, your curiosity, your sense of dissatisfaction with yourself, it was a, it was a standard you set yourself, not anyone else. Yeah. How did you know that moment? How, what was it? Was there, I don't know. There's nothing. You just had a sense that this is you it. Just have a sense when it all comes together, mm-hmm. when this curve isn't right, and you work at it, and you put the accent of the curve here, or you move the accent of the curve, or you or you realize, like, uh, even though it's a student thing right now, um, I could give you an example. A student brought in work and because uh, I was teaching furniture also in uh, in the interior department at Pratt, too. But I finally gave that up because the minds are changing in that department, so it's harder for them to understand industrial design than it used to be, and it's weird, and we'll talk about that. Yeah, but I don't, I don't know whether that's anything to be discussed here or not. But I looked at this student's work, and I said, there's something wrong. They said, well, what do you mean? I said, there's something wrong with this. It's, it, it doesn't come together. There's just something wrong. And I said, I'll know about it at the end of the class. So, so I went through and critted all the other work. Yeah, there were, I think, 16 in the class. And we were overtime at the end, and it was a night class. It was because they have so many classes to take. So I was teaching from 2 in the afternoon until 8 at night, and then this was about 8.30. And I said, let me go back to that. Can you stay? And he said, yes, I'll stay. So we pinned it up again, and I looked at it. All of a sudden, it came to me. There was an equal division between something and something. I can't tell you what it was, but there was an equal division. It had robbed that whole that whole piece of all the energy it had because it was equal mm-hmm. and I said if you move this and shorten this and then we did that and took some tracing paper and put over the drawing that he had and I said this will strengthen it and then he did the model and it was fine uh-huh. but it was just and this, this was a drawing and I had to think of it three-dimensionally. But it was equal. And when you get equal, as I said, this was the thing about why that works. When you, tr- when you use abstraction to redesign the human body, when you use strictly abstract terminology and what you've learned to redesign something that is symmetrical with two hands, two legs, two eyes, how do you make this look right? How do you make it come together? You know, and I'll show you some beautiful abstractions of the human body that these students did. 
never would have been able to do that without an understanding of the abstract vocabulary. One of the things I've read, and I think this is correct, is that mm. Pratt, you teach people to think horizontally, not vertically. Yes. Can yes. you just expand on that a little bit? Because yeah. I've, I've got a question I want to follow up with specifically about the way kids are taught today. If you think horizontally, you're thinking across all fields in all areas. You're thinking about all visual. You're thinking about not one area specifically. It's like if you're doing just a vertical thing, if somebody is thinking only of furniture, only of construction, only of joinery, but then you think horizontally, how many things are joined in different ways? In 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 science, how do how do how do cells join? How do you know? Suddenly, it's 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 that biosymmetry sort of it's 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 going into other fields and understanding what is happening there. How is that joinery happening? How does that change? How can my furniture? How can this chair change? This chair is an adjustable chair. Well, is there a way? in how a cell changes that can refer back here. That's horizontal thinking. Mm. But if you're thinking vertically, you're not giving yourself a chance to expand. You know? It's just something That's my interpretation. Yeah, I mean it's something that um, Elaine and I were talking about. Elaine used to work at Google and, and talked a lot about how people are given very specific vertical roles you become very deep and focused in one specific yes. area what? it's almost like the scientific management <laughs> practice of the modern of the of the um uh, information age and that it it's i just have a sense that maybe we're we're losing something in our education system by teaching people to become vertical yes. specialists and not horizontal well except or? in some of the horizontal thinking mm -hmm. There's not enough practical, um, see, it depends. Like industrial design, as I said, is such a practical field. You're designing for the public. You're designing to make things both functional and beautiful all at once, at the same time. Now, if you're just designing to make them beautiful and the functionality doesn't come in, then you're in a different area. You're in the art and beauty area and decorative and, you know, okay. But that's not industrial design. Or if you're in the making of it, then you're in the craft area. But yeah. industrial design is called industrial design because it's multiple pieces. It's not just one piece that's beautiful. It's multiple pieces turned out by a factory. Brilliant. That's, that's beautiful. That's great. Yeah. That's incredible. Sometimes also ergonomic, where people have to use it or walk with it or live next to it. So there's a lot about understanding the human body. You have to, to understand the human body if you're going to be an adult. That's the reason I don't design in interiors in furniture anymore. I said... I've done it for 20 years. The minds in the interior department at, and, and I hate to say it, at Pratt, because I don't know any other school, mm -hmm. they're changing, is becoming more architectural. Mm -hmm. 
you're thinking about negative space and patterns and wall coverings and lighting. That's wonderful. But they're losing the ability to design a thing. A thing. A thing. This is a thing. These are all things. They don't have that ability to design a thing. They design a chair with a bumpy back. Well, your spine, if you sit back, oh yeah. How come you didn't think of that in the beginning? Didn't you sit back in your chair and say, I'm designing a chair, I have to sit back in it? Where are the arms? The arms are up here. Do you see how uncomfortable is that? Did you take your body and put it in that situation? I teach a course from the point of view of culture, of designing tabletop material, you know, to eat from. Mm -hmm. From the point of view of a culture, how do you imbue these forms with the culture of the country? How do you do that? What is your eye going to pick up? You have to study that country. You have to do the research that's necessary. I designed the course, wrote the, the syllabus for it, and have been teaching it now for about 18 years. I shudder to think what the tabletop of Scotland would be like given the diet of Scot Scottish people. I'm <laughs> 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 just saying, don't no, go there. No, but it's, it's for, for in order to hold the food, yeah. to, to have it part of that culture, how do you visually use these pieces that are holding the food of the culture to, to present it to a diner and yet also have that piece representative of that culture. I mean, that is a difficult thing. It's, it's very interesting when we, we, so many times we have conversations with people about the impact of artificial intelligence and what's going to happen. It does feel, the way you're describing the process of this, the, your approach to design, it, artificial intelligence is never going to replace the ability that a good designer is coming from something artificial. Mm -hmm. yeah. And we have to hold on to a humanity designing for humanity. If it goes through a whole series of things, that's fine. But eventually, it has to be used by people. And how do you use it by people? <laughs> how do you use it? Is it... Can you check the home? Is it used outside? Is it used in the subway? <laughs> there wouldn't be innovation if, if it wasn't human-led. If it was automated by artificial intelligence, it would I don't know. There may something. be a way. Yeah. Eventually, it may be uh, enough feeding of human intelligence into artificial uh -huh. intelligence so that artificial intelligence can rethink this in the same way the humans rethink things. But can we give artificial intelligence that horizontal? Mm -hmm. I think that's where artificial may be terrific, mm -hmm. to be able to pick up all the scientific information, well, all the architectural information, all this, and then to be able to think in a slice across all of that. And so you feed into it and ask it the right questions. Mm -hmm. 
and it comes up with combinations that you never would have thought of. It's probably going to be some uh, generations away. Oh, yeah, it's some generations away. But that's the way it can be used to advantage. Mm -hmm. It's not a scary thing. It's something to be considered as being able to make combinations and see beyond what... Because, now, take it this way. I went to a thing with a friend the other night down at Poetry House. It was a combination of higher mathematics and poetry and how they merge. Okay, it can be it can be pattern, it can be rhythm, it can be numbers in those terms, but the gal that was there and she wasn't well prepared, brilliant, brilliant, but not well prepared, got into the higher mathematics that were beyond any math I ever had, and using terminology. Now, if that were fed into artificial intelligence, and artificial intelligence told to recreate for the average mind, (laughs) like mine, which is not even average down here somebody. Could it spit out to me what that was about and then refer into science a number of different areas, all horizontally sliced? I mean, how amazing that would have been. But this gal couldn't do that because she didn't have the facility to do that. And her friend there didn't have the facility. And he's a musician. But, uh, but it's that sort of artificial intelligence that I look to and I'm hoping that the people that are working with this realize what they've got. You know, it's not just press a button and somebody will do something for you or the, the machine will clean your ear or turn on the right radio station. Or that's, that's a bunch of crap. We should be able to do that for ourselves. It's making us lazy. Well, I think it goes, it goes slowly. The process goes slowly and well some databases and all the information that they're gathering start to mm. um, have interconnections. You first have to build some things yeah. to experiment and then it goes further on. Yeah, yeah. It will happen. Yeah. It's like you say, uh, we all have great hopes, but also there are also many fears. for. There the are a lot of fears, but I, I, I think if, it, if it's done in the right way with the right people doing it, I mean, who knows if we can elect who we've got as president, who knows what can happen. Oh. We could spend a whole co- um, oh, podcast okay. on artificial intelligence, but oh. we've. Um, okay. I'd like okay. to get into some um, what we call our quick fire questions. Yeah, sure. A quick er or yeah. quickish, <laughs> depending. Let's bang, see. bang, bang, bang. Okay. Um, let's, let's start with who's inspired you and why. Well, I guess the people that have been able to to put themselves out there at an early time uh, when, uh, when I didn't have a, a, an inkling as to how to do that, and I still don't. I just work very hard at what I do and uh, make it the best that it can be. And then beyond that, I had no way of promoting myself. I mean, self-promotion to me is a big mystery. 
I don't know where to start. I, if somebody's interested in, in, in what I do, that's fine. Uh, that's why I never worked on my own, because I was such a poor self-promoter. I couldn't do that. With some people, that comes yeah, automatically. <laughs> Other people like me, couldn't. I just was interested in designing, and that's why in my later years now I've gone to teaching, because uh, I haven't wanted to to push to say you know this old lady has as good ideas as somebody else. No, why should I do that? Huh. Who or what has made you reevaluate yourself? Age. Huh? Age makes you reevaluate yourself as to what your strengths are, and I've realized I'm much stronger than I thought I was. Because all the stuff I went through with Lou dying, that's the thing we haven't gotten into. Lou had a pain in his back, had been skating with my daughter, said tomorrow I'm gonna go to the doctor. I was on a freelance job. They said, you have a telephone call, picked up the, uh, they said, "Uh, Lucia Draspinus, yes, your husband just died. What? He'd never been sick a day in his life. Your whole life changes, totally. A daughter seven years old, responsibilities. Somebody that you've been with for 13 years is no longer there. What? How is that possible? Totally unexpected. So you met Lou at Pratt. He was in the same year as you. Same year. Three years later, we met at... MoMA, he Uh was coming down the stairs, the old stairs, these long stairs, three of them as you went up to the next level, which was so lovely at the museum. And we talked, he said, I'm fed up where where I am, they don't understand design at all. I said, well, you know, why don't you come over to Monty's, they could use somebody with some taste. (laughs) So he said, come over. So he came over, Monty saw his work and said, you're hired. And then you left. And then a year, well, no, then, let's see. This was three years after we had graduated that I met her. Then uh, we started going out together. And then uh, we got really involved. So then I had a chance to go to George Nelson. And he had, he left Monty shortly after and went with uh, with um, Ed Wormley. And Edward said he had never seen such furniture and design as he had in his portfolio. He said, you think like I do. So they worked together for 10 years and I was, you know, and he was, uh, let's see, then, then Edward decided he was gonna close the office and, and Dunbar was going to go out of business uh, because they wanted to, the, the, the family. And they, I think there was another group that took it, and Lou said, forget it. I'm, I'm leaving then. And then he went with an architect, and then that's when this happened. He had his own office down there, and then he had uh, decided he didn't want his own office. He didn't like to work alone either any more than I did. So then, um, then he went with this architect, and that's when it happened. Uh, he had been there uh, about a year and a half. So it happened at work. 
that during the day at work? No, he walked into the doctor's office. Well, he didn't feel well, and the, and the um, the architect's wife was there at the time, and she was doing she was doing contact work for her husband. So she was there, and she said, "I'll walk you over to the doctor's office because they weren't too far away." Or I guess they took a cab over. And the doctor's office was right at Lexington and 36th Street. Mm -hmm. And that's when he collapsed. They didn't know what it was. They didn't know then. When you have a pain in your back, it can be your heart. Uh, of course. They didn't know that then. You can tell now with Sunday, the blood. Sunday, we had gone across the street to emergency, to NYU. They had taken his blood and everything. And they didn't realize that it takes a day before the dead cells show up in blood for a heart attack. Um. This was in, you know, it's like the dark ages when you think of it, and yet we all thought we knew so much. But this was 19, uh, this was 1970. And, and I mean, we had been there, gone there, and they said, you're fine, and they sent him home. That was on Sunday, and then he said, I'm gonna go to my own doctor. I said, good. And we parted, and Lucia went to school, and he, he went to, to his office, and I went down to the freelance job I was at, down at Minners, and when Bob Minners heard that, he said, we can use you four days a week. I said, gee, that would be great. That must have been so difficult for you to bring up your daughter alone at that time. So that's why it was, it was tough. Suddenly, I never thought of myself as an only, as an only parent, but suddenly I had to work like mad night and day and, uh, and try to make contacts with people and try to remember the old people that were at Nelson's and call them again. There was no internet. Yeah, there was no way of putting your, your portfolio on. Online. Or, it was no, just online an, so, or so it was all no, your, it was just crazy. your face-to-face -face network. It was crazy. Uh, and it was, but you have to be prepared for the apps. And that's why I tell the students, prepare yourself well, because it was industrial design that was my hook. Mm -hmm. I threw myself into my work. I never looked back. I worked like mad. I put her through college. She went to Sarah Lawrence. She got scholarships. She, you know, she was great. Uh, and never had any problems. I yeah. said this before in one of the other podcasts. It's not the circumstances that define you; it's your response to them. So it sounds like your response to those sad circumstances, to a certain extent, you you embrace that change again. You have to with vigor and with, I suppose, a yeah. positivity and a belief in yourself. You have to. Mm -hmm. If you don't have that, as I said, if you don't think that your work is good. If you don't have the, the ability to walk into an office and say, you know, I did this, I'm proud of it, and, and to yourself, mm -hmm. of course. Um, and also something else I tell students, somebody says, can you do this? Always say yes. Always. Because if you're bright and you've graduated in design, you know your way around, you'll find a way to learn to do it. But you just say yes. Somebody, the first time they said, can you do an interior? Of course. Yeah. And you do it. You know, can you do lighting? Of course. Well, when, you've, when, you're a, when you can think horizontally, 
That, yeah. uh, of course, it comes... That's what you try to do, yeah. What principles have you lived your life by? Doing the best I can. Always, in whatever it is. And observing the fact that other people have to be considered. You know, humanity is humanity. Humanity to each other. Um, and if we lose that, we lose everything. But thinking about, also an animal lover. Particularly <laughs> <laughs> a cat lover. <laughs> oh, a cat lover, dog lover, frog lover, worm lover, nature lover. I think you have to respect everything that's around you. You have to respect nature. You have to respect people, even though they may not respect you. But don't fall into a hole, you know, always keep your own ideas of respect and understanding and, and a, a feeling of humanity with others. What hard choices have you had to make that might have been tough at the time that turned out to be a good thing looking back? Well, I didn't think there were choices. I felt I had to take care of my mother my mother remarried at the age of 72 uh, after being a widow for 25 years. And it was someone in, in Del Mar that she had known uh, for some time. 13 years later, she developed Parkinson's. And then it was getting pretty bad. But uh, Ron was able to, uh, to deal with it. And I would go up uh, on weekends and... Uh, uh, and then he died, and I was at a, uh, I was at a, uh, what was going to be a client, I was hoping, out in California, and I got the word I had to come back before I even saw the client. I came back, and then uh, the house up there, of course, uh, I had to try to hire people. Uh, Ron's, sister, Ron's uh, daughter came in with her husband, and they helped out. But eventually, I found some people to shovel the snow and to mow the lawns and to do all that stuff. And then I ended up finding people that were good to take care of her. But I went up for three and a half years. I would work four days and then go up on Friday night, uh, Friday afternoon, and be there Saturday and Sunday and come back early Monday morning for three and a half years every week. When you were pre-teaching pre, pre at Pratt, or pre-Pratt? Yeah, this was, uh, let's see, this was pre-Pratt. No, I was teaching at Pratt once a week, just running in for three hours a week and out. So I would run in for three hours a week, and, and that worked out. But then I was going back and forth, so I was able to work as long and many hours as I wanted to. So that just added to the, the challenge was, of bringing up a... It was a challenge, and you just do it. You just do it. That was the most challenging thing I had to do. And then to deal with moms, and then finally she said uh, she had lost her sight, that she had glaucoma the way I do. But in those days they didn't have the drops and all, so mine is sort of stopped uh, taking my sight, but she'd lost her sight by the time she was 90. 
and uh, she would have been great otherwise, but she had stiffened because of Parkinson's. And uh, so I brought her down, got a, um, a, a senior citizen's home on Roosevelt Island before it had become the crazy place it is now with thousands and thousands of people. And it was a great it was a great place then. I used to go over by bike because I used to ride my bike all over New York all the time before anybody else was riding their bike. And, and my mother used to say, I hope you're careful. I said, yeah, I'm careful. Uh-uh. Except for the guy from the New York Times. The, and, and Bob, we, um, a, a friend of ours, um, stepfather, Bob Wilmers, who was yeah. M&T uh, chairman of M&T oh. Bank. He just died last year. Oh, right. And oh, he yeah. lived in the Upper West Side and he cycled everywhere. Oh, sure. Bank. And, yeah, yeah. Lucian and Michael do too. Yeah. They didn't want the car when I had to get rid of it because of my eyes about seven, eight years ago. And uh, I had to get rid of it. And it was a, it was a, 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 a Forester, a, a Subaru Forester. And I loved that car. So I had to sell it for, I got, I think $3,500. It was 10 years old, but it was perfect mint condition. And I used to drive all over because I loved to drive. And my daughter said, you stop me driving. I said, yes, before I hit somebody and have that on my conscience for my life, mm-hmm. what's left of it. Um, where do you go to discover new ideas or when you need space to think? I don't go someplace. Mm-hmm. It's just always with me. It's in your, in your you mind. See, what, what it, it, I don't know how other people think, but I, I think this is true of most industrial designers. You're constantly thinking. You're walking down the street. You think, why did they do that that way? How does that held up? Why did they paint it that color? I mean, it's just constant, you know, and you're, you're questioning everything around you. And if you have a problem and you sit down and then all of a sudden it comes together and you just sketch and sketch and sketch and you have piles of sketches and sketches and sketches. And then you, you go through and you find something that, seems to work well or if you're doing an interior you 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 put it together in your head somehow and like uh, on graphics you just keep trying things and trying things then developing that like the uh, the logo I designed and the and 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 whatever it it's it's too bad I can't show you this stuff because yeah, then you can just look at it but it, it just all comes together, and it's always with you. I mean, that's what I mean about the hook. Mm-hmm. That industrial design is always with me. And even if you're depressed, it sort of raises your spirits because then suddenly you're thinking of something else. Why, why is that? And don't I have to do that? And, you know, I didn't I don't talk know. to you at length about curiosity, but it, um, you seem to be an incredibly curious individual. And you deal with students now a lot of the time you have done. Do you think that curiosity is something that's just innate or is it something that you need to develop? I think it's innate. I've had students that that look at this and say, oh, gee, that's nice. What is that? Does that open up? And I've had students that I could see for a whole year and they would never ask me anything. And for the ones that ask me, I say, well, it's a turtle, and turtles get very old. And also, I'll always know where I'm going, because when you open it up, there's a compass inside. Uh-huh. And I've had it since I was eight years old. Wow. 
We got it in Maine, Cunnybunkport, and we used to go in the summer and travel up in Maine a lot. Anyway. We have a question we ask every guest, which is, we call the impossible question, is what would your advice be to someone who's either just about to graduate or about to go to study that might have a great dream, a grand ambition, or a big desire and goal, but has been told by people around them that it's just not possible? Don't listen to people around you. (laughs) (laughs) If you're confident in yourself, and if you didn't do very well at design school or whatever school you went to, that's not where you stop. Ever hear of a late, late bloomer? Okay. You don't know what your potential is, and no, nobody else knows that your potential. So if you're constantly searching for your potential and searching for where you can learn more and do more, make more connections, or, or do the thing that you love and do it better and better and better, if you find something that you love to do, then you're very fortunate. I was fortunate that way. And if you have to spend 10 hours of every day doing the thing you love, how could you not smile at the end of the day? But if you have to spend 10 hours of your day doing the thing you don't like, rethink that. Yeah, there's a, there's a Japanese concept. I think I get the pronunciation right. It's um, ikag. Ikagi, which is the intersection of what you're good at and what you love. Mm. The perfect perfect place. And that's where I am, the perfect place. And I'm very fortunate. Uh, You just keep doing what you're doing and you get better and better. A couple of final questions. Um, What book would you want us to offer our listeners that come up with the best comments in the comment section? What book would you recommend that someone read? I have no idea. Because different books appeal to different people. There's a a book on history and how black history has become so much a part of us and we don't realize it. Mm -hmm. And that's These Truths by Judith, and I forget her last name. And it's very big, very long, very detailed, but from the very beginning, it, it melds together all those parts of this country and our history. It may not be for people that are newly American, because, and then again it might be. I don't know. But I know for the average American to read a book like this will really put together all the things that we've ignored. And this, this book, I think, was the it got several awards and I think it was on the bestseller list for years and years. Question: There yeah. was one question which I have to ask you yeah. because you being an educator, um, as well as a, a a designer, which is because we're very focused on the importance of education for addressing the systemic issues we face in society. So, oh, if God, you were given yes. the keys to the mayor's office or ideally the White House, what would your first uh, few decisions be or decision? to create more educational opportunity for the kids of this country? I put music and art into every school in the country at a very early grade because it would broaden the outlook of every student. 
And then I put poetry in. And then I'd make sure every kid could read. And I would put millions of dollars, millions and millions, billions of dollars into education. Because I think we can see what happens when our public is not very well educated. And I'll say no more about that. Perfect, perfect answer. Um, just uh, when you were talking, it made me think of the, the great, I'm not sure if you've seen it, the great Sir Ken Robinson talk on creativity in schools no. uh, on TED. We'll send no, you I, no, I haven't. It's brilliant. It's by far, I think it's probably the most watched TED talk ever. Final question, who should we interview next? I would interview someone, someone who sleeps on the street. You know, also the people that are doing really good things and are very quiet about it. Mm -hmm. uh, I wish there were more, and I wish they would let their names be known or let their works be known. But once in a while it pops up on, uh, on the news or something. But even these little kids who put together money and then have started groups and then it expands and then... You know, there's so much good going on, and people don't know about it. I just wish there was a way to make that known. But I think when you're talking about individuals, I think someone that is homeless that could give you their journey, and someone you have to pick an age group, not a young person that's homeless, yes. but somebody in their 40s that at that time should be at the height of their education and and and, and, earning, and, potential. and earning potential yeah. and how they feel at this point in their lives i think everyone should know mm -hmm. what happens to people that are homeless don't forget it's 90 percent luck and prepare that 10 percent mm -hmm. like mad okay do you guys have any more questions that you want to cover off what is your definition of timeless design timeless design design that hasn't based itself on style of the period or style of the moment. A design that looks across to why it's, why it's going to be existing, you know? I don't know. You could say that, like the eye clock, you could say that was very much a design of the 50s, very much of the late 50s, early 60s. And yet why has it lasted? I think that a lot of timeless design gets swept up by how it's approached by the press and if you see it enough times and it just exists or it may sell for the right price that clock doesn't my daughter wanted it and I had to pay 450 bucks <laughs> to get it because I couldn't get it for free but I don't know what timeless design is really I guess it's just designs that are lucky to last mm -hmm. and if they haven't been so stylistically oriented, if they've served their purpose well, and if visually they're not too bad to look at. From an architect perspective, or yeah. from a, another type of designer perspective, I think also the combination of proportions, like if, if the, it has more visually good proportions and the materials are more everlasting than the typical ones that are like on fashion at the moment? Well, the form, yeah. I mean, the form has to be beautiful and it has to be something that, that probably is generally accepted too. So I don't know whether we're talking about timeless as appears in the magazines, uh, timeless as is thought of by your top architects, timeless as 
the average man in the street? I don't know. I think you'd have to say, what is the definition of timeless? We didn't, we didn't cover off the Dunkin' Donuts. I don't know if you want to hear the story. I think we should capture it, don't you? Do you have time? I think, yeah, we've got time, yeah. Sanguin and Merther were a corporate identity uh, company. They did, well, they started to get into interiors and uh, into restaurant interiors, really, primarily. So someone that I knew, at, uh, that I had known previously, that graduated from Pratt, in fact, he called me and he said, you know, we're doing some interior stuff, and Dunkin' Donut has asked us to do an on-the-street a small place to redesign what they've got uh, with a counter and donuts behind and off the street. What year was it? 1975. And uh, they're also wanting us to do a new corporate identity for them. I said, okay. He said, why don't you come over? So I I looked at, uh, spoke to the guys uh, that represented them that came in and looked at what they had. And they said, you know, we wanted just a simple counter and whatever, but we wanted to have a certain look. So I thought, hmm, certain look. What do they have now? They didn't have a certain look at all. It was just crummy. And everything they had was tan and black and white, and and their corporate identity was, I think, a cup, and it was tan, and I think there was black lettering or something. I can't even remember it. That's why why they were redesigning it. So the graphics department had been working like mad on it, and I eventually I worked for a, a week probably, and then built a model. And uh, I designed the donut area and and the sign, and then I did a, a donut fixture for the ceiling, and they were going to install all this. I did details for it. They were going to install it, I think, in Buffalo, New York, or Rochester, or someplace upstate. And I did a wallpaper, which was a tan and, a, and an almost white, very subtle, but I used the hot dog lettering, and I went in and I, I said, "What do you What are you using?" And they said, "Well, here we've got this." And they were using hot dog lettering, you know. But I said, "Where's the color?" And they said, "No, it's toast. It's toast in the morning, and and it's it's toast and coffee, right? And it's 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 donuts and toast and coffee and and tan and white and and warm colors." I said, "Uh, uh-uh. uh." No. I said, it's orange and pink. It's Mike, my daughter's favorite colors for every birthday party she's ever had. And by that time, she was about 10. And I said, no, it's got to be orange and pink. It's fun. Donuts are not are not toast and coffee. You have toast. And I said, it's fun. And they said, oh, forget it. So he said, have them, have them do it. Do it. You know. So I went in and I said, okay. So I did this orange. I said, orange here, and I'm going to use hot dog lettering, orange here, and pink. And I went over to Pantone and picked out the orange and pink that vibrated, the same value, you know, but they vibrated a little next to each other. So I said, here, do this. Take that lettering. Do it like this. I did a rough sketch of it. I said, put Dunkin' and Donuts and make this orange and this pink. Oh, no, you're an industrial designer. Go away. Now, Stan said, just do one like it for her. Okay, just do one like it. Okay. They came back on Monday. I walked in and passed Stan's office. He was on the phone. I said, how did it go? He said, ask them. They're going. I walked into graphics. I said, how did it go? They said, I said, where did they, where did they, what did they pick? They picked yours. (laughs) They had... Ten others, and they picked mine. 
And I think they picked it. It was so outstanding against mm-hmm. all the yeah. others that made the others look like they were <laughs> going to a funeral. So, <laughs> so that was it. So they've kept it since 1975, and now they're just saying Duncan. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the pink is in the comma. Uh-huh. I mean, in the apostrophe up above. So that was the story. And every time my daughter saw it, she'd say, those are my colors. I said, yes, they are. If it hadn't been for your colors, that wouldn't be there. (laughs) That's one you would want some rights on, that's for sure. (laughs) So that was fun. Yeah. Great story. Well, so thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for just the the inspiration. Inspiring wisdom that you've imparted around. I don't know who's going to think it's inspiring and who's even going to oh think it's God. wisdom. Oh, oh, I, it's, no, but it's, no, I mean, even wisdom. It, I mean, everybody knows all this. Please. Yeah, but not many people live by the values of which you've imparted. And I think a lot of people in today's world that are looking for direction and some universality. And what you've imparted, I think, is is, is great advice. Oh, I'm glad you think there's and something And particularly there. in terms of the importance of, for me, in terms of for education, for the importance of creativity and curiosity and how we need to think about our education system. I think yeah. you've um, you've shared some sort of great insights. Well, and, thank uh, you for those thank, kind thank, words. I thank you for your patience with us. And one other thing I want to just add, you reached the top of your profession at a time when women didn't really... Yeah. play a part and I think we're living in a society now obviously where women are achieving incredible oh, yeah. success and breaking down barriers smashing that glass ceiling yeah okay we haven't had an American president <laughs> yet but we've had British Prime Ministers yeah. I think you are a trailblazer for women and for anyone that's in the Me Too movement or is um, setting their high ambitions and have goals and dreams, you are a shining example that women can break through the barriers and the uh, the enclave that men try and control and maintain, whether it be in traditional businesses or industries. So I think you should, uh, we should certainly acknowledge you for what you've achieved and to be a, a standard bearer for women. And Merritt Moore, who we interviewed two weeks ago, who's 30-year-old, quantum physicist ballet dancer is mm, featured in a book amazing. called oh, Bedtime Stories for Rebel Girls. I think Wonderful. Lucia should be in the next episode. Yeah. In the next, so they've volume. done two volumes. The that's third volume, we need to tell Merritt, you we have to be interviewed for yeah. it. No, true. It is true because what you did at a time when you said you graduated with only two women in your course and went into a very male-dominated society. And it, it was discouraging. Yeah. yeah. A lot of it. A lot of times. I just got fed up with it. Mm-hmm. I knew that guys were making more. I knew that a guy would be hired before I would be. And when you didn't have an internet and you couldn't show a portfolio ahead of time and they knew you were a woman coming in for an industrial design job, it put a negative to it immediately before you even put your foot in the door, which was really depressing. <laughs> I mean, I can just think back to I started my first job in advertising in 1989. Mm. There were no women in the creative department then. Uh, there were very few women in any department in ad yeah. agencies at that point. Well, the thing is, you look at Industrial Design Magazine and you look, it wasn't until just recently that you see a lot of women other than, oh, she was an editor and she came in, mm-hmm. or she was a, 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 a research person and came in, or this. 
but as far as a designer that sat there designing stuff and have it, getting it produced and getting it sold someplace, you didn't see any women doing that. And mm-hmm. I thought, maybe I should have gone into editing or something. <laughs> I mean, Thank goodness you didn't. Do you keep up with contemporary industrial design? Are you... Only superficially, mm-hmm. because a lot of everything that is, well bullhorned around the world it's a lot of crap you know it's somebody decides that they've got that ability to put their name forth or whatever and you look at what's been done or whatever and i guess it's because i'm so critical that's why i'm a good teacher because i'm a terrific critic and i criticize drawings to the point where or work or three-dimensional or sketch models or whatever to the point where They have to really work to get them up to par because there's just certain things I won't accept. And I'm trying to get them to see, to understand, to, to visually educate themselves. And I say, you're paying my salary. You have to stay here and try to understand what I'm saying. And then you have to ask me the right questions. I'm not asking you the right what You have to ask me the right questions so that I understand that you understand. Have you, um, I don't know if this falls into industrial design, but have you uh, been to see the vessel yet in Hudson Yards? The stairway? No, no, uh, I, I want to climb it. Mm-hmm. I want to go to the top. Yeah. It's a great idea because it gives you something when you finally get to the yeah. top, which <laughs> is a view of the city. Yeah. But it's a piece of yeah. it's a piece of great of great sculpture in the middle of all that. It's a piece of great sculpture. Yeah. Well, there's an invitation from yeah. Benita. Yeah, would you like to do a impossible network excursion to the Hudson Yard and go and visit the vessel with us? I don't know if I'd be able to keep up with you. We'll be, but I have seen you with that screwdriver. Let me tell you, you probably <laughs> you're probably up on that vessel before I even get to the elevator. So no, but <laughs> take the uh, challenge. but you're talking about the stairway, yeah, the stairway up to yeah, the very yeah, top. Yeah, that yeah. wonderful thing is like yeah, this. Yeah, and yeah. Yeah. I love the shape of it. It is beautiful, isn't it? Because it says you start here and then you expand. You know, it has yeah. that expansive feeling. And, uh, yeah, but I haven't started to go up. And remember, I can't see anything. Oh, well, we'll go with you. We'll take you there. Yeah. We'll, we'll invite you. <laughs> Someday when it's not yeah. horribly humid, yeah. but when it's warmer. Yeah. And uh, a friend of mine went up. She went up part way. She's about 10 years younger than I am. I said, she's a child. <laughs> She's 80. <laughs> 81 now. We're exactly 10 years apart. And she lives in the sixth, on the sixth floor in the other part of this building. If oh, I pounded through no. the wall, I could go right through. That's <laughs> and uh, so we're, we're German beer drinkers together. Okay, well, Bettina, it's yeah. your, your challenge to set a, an invitation yeah. to the vessel. Um, yes, it will make it happen. Okay, well, th- thank okay. you. Thank you again. Thank you. We, we you guys are great. And on and on. Okay, folks, that's it for this week. Just go to iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or whatever podcast player you listen to subscribe and rate. And if you like the show, please give us a five-star rating as it helps more people discover us. If you want to learn more or have someone you'd like us to interview, just visit us at theimpossiblenetwork.com or DM us on Instagram at The Impossible Network. For now, 
Be curious, be creative, and be open to serendipity. See you next time.